0: A couple of acknowledgments, and this uh, this is going to take a minute, but I'm not going to reduce time in the sermon later, so just be prepared. Um, First off, uh, as we talk about sex, that may not be what you were signing up for today to come to church. And um, I understand that talking about sex in church is strangely weird. Um, It seems like we have some thoughts about it here and God talks to us, but all that to say is that if you need to step out, or you're like, I, I need to go, like, um, please feel very free and do not feel like anyone in the room is going to be looking at you weird because you stepped out, you need to go to the bathroom, get a drink of water, just walk around because something lands with you in a way that's just hard to be in here, then that's, um, please feel freedom to do that. And also that, know that Jen and Susan and myself and Giorgio and others are here uh, if you want to process any of this um, stuff as well or maybe we're like the last people you would wanna process this stuff with, in which case I could recommend someone. Um, And uh, a couple of things before we we even read this passage or start talking. Um, First uh, acknowledgement is that I am a man, uh, speaking to women and men, uh, who have many anxieties and curiosities around sex. Um, There is a lot of pain in the room, Around sex, everybody in this pain uh, in this room experiences sexual pain and carries it in your body and in your soul. And um, and often that pain has come from and maybe continues to come from men and authority like myself to stand in spaces like these. And just want to acknowledge that. Um, also acknowledge that sexual identity and practice is very much part of our conversation um, as a society um, that we belong to. And uh, much of that conversation is really complex and difficult. And again, men speaking for God often do severe damage to that conversation and cause trauma. Uh, I'm capable of the same, and so just acknowledge that. Um, also, this is kind of kind of tongue-in-cheek, but not really. Um, if you are really angsty about like your sexu- your views on sexuality. Uh, and you're looking for a place that you can just feel like totally confident in your take on sexuality, and that like that this place is going to like you need this place to be a cheerleader for like your cause, then you're probably going to be disappointed in this sermon, and you're probably going to be disappointed in Redeemer in general. Um, that's just not how we roll. Uh, we don't exist as a place to cheerlead what you, you know your angsty take on something. We're actually an angst-free zone. So. Um, or we aspire to be in next free zone. Um, <clears throat> just wanted to give you fair expectation on that. And finally, uh, second to last, and very importantly, I um, just want to acknowledge that women have historically been treated as a sexual problem for men, especially in religious communities, especially in the American church. Uh, you know, I've spent a lot of time working with, on campus with college students, many of whom grew up in the church or in religious communities. I did not, so I learned from them what it's like to grow up in these spaces, and um, I just heard a lot of stories of young girls being shamed over what they wore to church camp or to the pool um, or talks about making boys and men stumble as if our sisters are an occasion to sin that must be managed and held in suspicion. Meanwhile, our sisters are particularly in danger from predatory and desperate men, especially in our spaces. This is a grief to our Lord, and has no place among the people of God. It's a cultural reality um, that must be repented of immediately, and it requires all of our collective work to repent of and remake a culture that celebrates our sisters and doesn't hold them in suspicion. Finally, um, God has healing and life for each of you. He intends healing for you and invites you into it. Uh, I'll do my best to not get in the way of his healing with my words and with my person, but I need your prayer for that. Um, Now, I say some of that because the text of God's word that we have for us this morning might, if we're not careful, confirm this view we have that women are somehow wily or dangerous and we need to watch out for. And so I want to give you a little bit of A way to how to orient to hearing the book of Proverbs in this text. So here's what's happening. The ancient culture that the Bible was written in, written, uh, you know, written in and spoken in, you know, which happened over many hundreds of years, um, centered, that that culture centered around and prioritized men. And the culture that we live in centers around and prioritizes men as well. Um, When God brought his word to bear, He spoke in ways that that culture could understand, and also at the same time upended that culture in ways that only God could. Um, God doesn't turn his nose up at our weird and messed up cultural stuff, thankfully, but he also doesn't endorse it or leave us in it. He always speaks in a way that brings us to full humanity if we will follow him. And so this book is a book of wisdom. It's about the art of living with God, living like God is real, living like Jesus has risen. And um, when reading this book of Proverbs, you need to know how to receive it. So you, the listener, the reader, are you are supposed to imagine that you are a young son. Okay, The, the addressee is a young son. So whether you're a man, woman, girl, or boy, you're supposed to receive this as a young son. That's the, the part that you're playing. And it's a, it's a letter in many ways that's written from wise parents, mostly dad, to this young son, and what these parents are telling their young son is to be mentored by this amazing, strong woman who we would call Lady Wisdom, saying these these parents want their son, they want you to grow up to be like this woman. Uh, She is the ideal. She is the embodiment of God's wisdom. You know, one of my favorite parts of Proverbs is like, it says, the beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom you know, be like Lady Wisdom. And along the way, these parents are telling this young son, therefore us, watch out for these two shifty characters. The one character is a foolish man and the other character is a seductive woman. And after all, in the best stories, women and men get to be full characters. They get to be the, the hero and they get to be the villain and they get to be the extras because we're co-equal in God's economy. We get to play both roles. So you, the hearer, are the young son, and the foolish man and the seductive woman want you to live for pleasure. But lady wisdom wants you to learn how to live a beautiful life with God. And your parents are telling you, be mentored by this woman. Um, You know, like the way that Susan mentors me and is in my life, and I want to be like her when I grow up. That's kind of what this writer is saying. And your parents are presenting you with the choice. And so, the art of living in God's wisdom, following Lady's wisdom with our sexuality, sounds something like this. And this is from Proverbs chapter 5. I'm going to read a little bit quickly through the first part because I want to focus near the end, and I'm aware of the amount of time that we have. So, listen this is the word of the Lord. Um, It's not just a good idea, it's not just ancient wisdom. Um, It's both of those things, but this is God speaking to us, and so it's only going to matter to you if you receive it as something from God in a spiritual sense. So listen up. My son, be attentive to my wisdom, incline your ear to my understanding that you may keep discretion, and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil, but in the end she is bitter as wormwood sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol, or the place of the dead. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not know it. And now, O sons, listen to me, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her, and do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others, and your years to the merciless." lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. At the end of your life, you groan and your flesh and body are consumed and you say, how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. Basically, if you don't listen up to me and follow this way, your life is going to be in shambles. It goes on to say, I'm at the, the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. Now, this is where I want us to focus. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? Obviously you can't drink it that well if it's all in the street. Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. It's the word of the Lord. I'm going to pray and ask that he would meet us as we talk about it together. Lord, we thank you for your word. You speak to us. You're not silent. You're not just waiting in the shadows for us to find you or to get our lives straight. You're not just letting us figure it out on our own. But Lord, you're speaking to us. And Lord, we want to have life uh, and have it to the full. Lord, we long to know what it really means to be a human being in your world and to flourish. And uh, you're you're helping us show us that way, even this morning. And uh, Lord, so I pray that um, you would just attend to my words. Uh, I have much fear of um, revisiting pain and of re-injuring. And so I pray, Lord, that you would prevent that. And I thank you for my sisters and brothers, especially my sisters, this morning for their willingness to sit, and hear your word. Um, And ask that you would speak to us and give us life. We pray, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen. So basically, what this section of the scripture says is what the whole Bible says, is that God gives us a context for our sexuality um, and this experience within this marital union, a husband and a wife, a man and a woman. And my question for us this morning that I want to explore with you is, is that view, the Bible's take on sexuality is that really good for women and men is that what is good for us or is it restrictive or maybe even damaging to people so what i want to do is look together with you first at what the bible actually says sex is and then why i i believe it is good and empowering for you so, especially in the church, most of the way that we talk about sex is kind of like this. Imagine you found a spray bottle on your kitchen counter, and you couldn't tell what was in it. You had no idea how it got there. And all the labels had been peeled off or scratched out, except for the warnings and the directions. Okay? So, you pick up this bottle, and you're like, what is this? And so, you, you try to find by looking at the bottle, what is it? And all it says is, don't spray it into your eyes. You know, harmful if swallowed. Uh, store in a cool, dry place. Yesterday, I looked at a bottle of something, and it's, it's safe for cats and dogs, but do not use around birds. That's Febreze, by the way. If you're Febrezing your bird cage, please uh, stop. It's not good for the bird. Um, and so you're left with this question: like, is this cleaner? Is it perfume? Am I supposed to spray it on myself? Am I supposed to avoid it? Is it weed killer or is it plant food? Basically, we, God bless you, we know a lot about what not to do when it comes to sex and why to be afraid of it. We know something of the warnings. But we really have no idea why sex exists in the first place or what it even is. Basically, we don't know the deep magic of sex and the deep internal logic beneath sex. And the world and the church have hidden that deep magic and preferred the warning. So why do we experience sex in the first place? Why do we experience sexual desire in the first place? According to the Scripture, which I believe is God speaking to us, sex is deeply rooted in what human beings are and what God is. According to the Scripture, what human beings are are God's image on the earth. That God created all things in his love and beauty, and he put human beings, you and me, on the earth to show each other and to show the world around us, to literally like show the trees and the birds and everything, what God is like. That is why you exist. We just pondered the meaning of life together. Um, Genesis 1, the very beginning of the Bible, says, so God created mankind in his own image, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Men and women, male and female, together join to show what God is like. You can think about it like actors on a stage. The Redeemer School just had Shakespeare, uh, Comedy of Errors, which was great during COVID to do Comedy of Errors. But they were out there on the stage, and they were performing roles. They were acting out these roles that had been given to them. And we perform our our roles as God's image to show one another and the world around us what God is like. Now you may think that sounds really basic if you spend a lot of time in like Christian context because that seems like it's kind of like sort of, you know, number one. Um, But it's actually deeply profound because God tells us what we are and why we exist simply by saying you are God's image. It tells you your purpose for life. And to image God, to act in a way that shows what is true and right about God is what the Bible calls good. And to act in a way that says something false about God is what the Bible calls bad or evil or sin. For example, I have, I have uh, three amazing daughters. Two of them are going upstairs, hey. And um, I get to image in their life God the Father. I'm their father, they have a father in heaven. I can either, if I, if I act out how God the Father is, then they, then they begin to experience true things about God, and that's good and beautiful. If I act contrary to how God the Father is, which I often do, I show them something false or evil about God. I can either show them God or not. And so you can either show one another God or not. So what is God? If that's what humans are, then we have to know what God is. And God is, a father, is, a, is one God eternally in three persons. Hang with me for this theology because it's worth it. Father, Son, and Spirit... Three persons joined together in one God. God is both a unity and a diversity at the same time. He is one and many at the same time. Actually, you might think that's weird. Um, everything in creation is like that. If you ever think about trees or bugs or dogs, you know, they're really the same. Like, all trees are trees. They have an essential unity and oneness. They're all trees. They, they fit that, that criteria but they're also many, they're diverse. Each one is different from the other and their oneness and manyness show God and who he is. And human beings were created as the central way of showing that, of imaging God, that all things in creation show that God is one and many. And God as one and many has existed forever and has always been giving and receiving pleasure, delight, glory, Father, Son, and Spirit, giving and receiving it always. Um, There's this part in in John 17, Jesus is actually about to go to the cross. And you got to think, I mean, what would Jesus be talking about if he was talking with his father before he went to the cross? And it's almost like you pick up the phone, like remember, well, if you remember when there used to be landlines, I have a landline, by the way, you can call me on it. Um, If you pick up the phone and somebody was already on the phone and you heard the people talking, you could gain a lot of understanding about their relationship by by overhearing them. And so let's overhear how Jesus talks to his father. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. He's saying, Father, I'm in you. You are in me. I want them to be in us, to be received into us. Later on, he goes on to say, "O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, listen, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. That as God shares, He is it, Father, Son, and Spirit are, give and receive are inside one, one another. They join together in a unity where their individual personality and personhoods are always retained. And what Jesus has come to do, this is going to be the weirdest thing you heard all day, is to bring you into that oneness that you can give and receive delight, pleasure, glory with God forever. God loves by giving and receiving, Father, Son, and Spirit, giving delight, celebration, and glory. There's a theologian, and he put it like this. Each of the distinct persons mutually indwells within the other. You're supposed to think about this in a physically, physical way. Even uh, there's a sense that the sex is the metaphor for, for this. They, d- they indwell within the other in a delightful, fully satisfying, and eternal interchange of life, light, and love. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, loving, loved, and love itself, giving, receiving, and gift. And think about this. I don't know what you think about when you think about God, what he's like, but this is it. It is as though the face of each of the three divine persons shines with the serene beauty and profoundest delight as they look upon one another. When Father, Son, and Spirit look on one another, they look on one another with profoundest delight. And it's God's love, which he shares, that delight, which always extends and expands and caused the creation of all things. It also caused his redemption. He moved into our world, entered our world because of his love for us. God coming into us, giving, uh, putting his seed in us, and we receive it and bear fruit. And that is true for all people of God, whether um, we are having sex or not. Sex is one of the very powerful ways in which we act out this unity and diversity and giving and receiving delight. It's not the only. The church itself actually shows this one and manyness. You are one body, and you are made of many members. Each of you individually matters and is distinct and is full of glory and honor, and you give yourself to this whole in which you become one. When you forgive somebody, you actually image God Because you were of a relationship, there was something between you that was broken, and when they come to you and you forgive them, there's reconciliation and healing, and you're able to join back together. Really, every part of the Christian's life is acting like God. And in sex, we do it in a particular way that shows, part of what it shows most strongly is God's delight, is God's seeing and receiving when God created the man and the woman initially, he said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Notice he doesn't say the wife does that. Harder for the man to do that, I think. Um, but says they says, he shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. One. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Our bodies are designed to show one and two. Men and women coming together to correspond to one another, to show God and his delight. Um, sex is very powerful in expressing God's desire and delight, that he's very pleased. I have a book that I'm sharing um, written by my daughter Rosie, who is a poet and an artist uh, and knows many deep and true and wonderful things about God that I want to learn from her. And uh, in, in this book, which is called The Book of Jesus, by the way, not for sale. Um, She writes, we are hungry for God. God is hungry to be near us. She knows what is true about God, that is part of what we act out in our sex, is that we are hungry for God and he is hungry to be near us. So the stage that God has given for sex is between a man and a woman, a husband and a wife, who are bound together for their lives, who give and receive delight and glory in their bodies and souls. And that shows God's beautiful oneness and manyness. It shows that God's love is generous and loyal. God doesn't have other lovers. He's committed to his beloved forever and is so pleased. So if that's what sex is, that's what should be on the label that's been peeled off. Why is that good for women and men? Um, Our backyard is one big sloping dirt pit currently and has been for a long time. We've sown clover on it, so it's getting better. But we have a backyard neighbor. His name is Paul Crone. Some of you know him. He's my homie. And he's a landscape architect, and he's helping us design over the coming years, like terraces and boundaries for gardens and for walkways and for waterways, and it's going to be amazing. And part of what all those boundaries do is they allow the flourishing of things that they all just run together and bring mud into my house. There is always some kind of boundary point when it comes to sex. Our culture has several boundary points that are very good and are worth affirming. Uh, Consent is one of our boundary points when it comes to sex. We, like, hopefully all agree on that, and God is like, yes. Uh, Both parties should be consenting to sex, should be saying, yes, this is what I want. We believe that another boundary is that all the, the, the parties should be adults. We like that. That's good. We're like, you shouldn't be in the same family. Okay, that's a boundary point that we all agree to. Um, those feel right to us as, as a society, but the, the problem with us as a society is we don't actually know what human beings are for. Uh, it's a question that we're always asking, like why do human beings exist in the first place? Because the answer, what should we do with sex would be to, an- to answer the question, what, why do human beings exist and what is their purpose? And so I just told you what the purpose of human beings is. So Christians root ours in God. And here's why that view of sex is good for you, for women, and for men. Number one, sex is good for humans because it is radical self-giving and mutual delight. Sex is an act of giving of yourself and receiving from the other their delight, acceptance, praise, love, I, I love, actually, how the writer of the Proverbs put this. Like, be, uh, it says, it's talking about rejoice yourself in the wife of your youth. Let her breast fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. The word there means to be carried away, to be swept away. It's supposed to fit with all the water stuff. Like, Why would you be swept away by a forbidden person? Like, Let your spouse intoxicate you and delight in them. Sex is a radical self-giving and mutual delight. Therefore, it cannot be simplified to mere personal pleasure. Part of what porn can never really communicate um, is this delighting in the other and being delighted in. Um, One of the hardest things to do on the planet is to allow someone else to delight in your body. To delight in who you are, to see you and say yes. Seeing and being seen are as vital to sex as the act itself because it is an act of mutual delighting. So, what sex does, this view of sex does, is it actually uncenters yourself from the center of sex. And, like, if there's something that I long for desperately and always have, and I, and I think you do too. It is to not be the, the center of something, to be able to share something. In sex, it's about you, but it's also about them giving and receiving delight. So therefore, sex must never, 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 never be an act of violence or domination. If it is, then it's not imaging God. It must be repented of, and the victims must be cared for. Because they, the, 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 person, the victim didn't just have something done wrong to them. They had something done that was ungodly to them. Sex is a place where women and men don't have to protect themselves. I know that sounds impossible to imagine. But that's what we learn together because we are learning together that we don't have to protect ourselves from God's delight. We have to teach that to our bodies. So false and destructive sex, therefore, happens whether you're single or married. Being married doesn't like somehow cover up counterfeiting God's image. Like You can do as much pain and as much violence within a marriage as you can outside of a marriage by, if you act contrary to how God is. If you're in that sexual encounter um, for your pleasure, you should repent. So sex is good for humans because it's a radical self-giving and mutual delight. Uh, also, sex is good for women and men because it makes women and men co-equal partners in giving and receiving delight, in showing God's unity and diversity. <clears throat> There's a woman named Rachel Hollander. You may know who she is. She is a gift to Christ Church. Um, she is a survivor of sexual abuse from Larry Nasser, who was the doctor on the U.S. Olympic gymnastics team. And she is now an advocate and a lawyer and a gift to our church. She actually exists within our denomination. Um, talk about a mentor. But she said this recently in something I read We've turned women into dangerous beings who control whether men fall and also into the solution for it. And yes, defining women and sexuality this way is the norm, it's not the exception. Women are taught as the cause and solution to men's sexual perversions. And that is wicked. It grieves the Lord. What this view of sex actually does is it it affirms the basic equality and dignity of both the partners, the woman and the man, together. When people started following Jesus in the early centuries of the church, it was in the Roman Empire. And uh, they were in a culture where sex was like ours, thought of as, um, as an appetite or a pleasure, like it was about pleasure where we have to, you know, it's like hunger or thirst, it's just part of who we are, we have to satisfy it. Um, and we have to satisfy it in the way that it leads us toward. But the problem was that it was also a hierarchical society where some people had power and some people di- didn't. And you can guess, if you're talking about gender, who had power. Basically what it, how it worked was that high-born men could have sex with whomever they wanted. It was just an appetite, just like eating a baguette. And um, if you were a woman, especially if you were a low-born woman or man or low-born girl or boy or any of those things, uh, you could not refuse sexual encounter with a high-born man. Someone that was above you in the pecking order was allowed to have sex. If you refused them, you were actually breaking the law. Then this view of sex, the one that we're talking about now, Came along that was built all on God's love, that Jesus had come and come into our world to redeem us, not to save us, to take us to heaven, but to actually join us together into a love relationship with God where we are safe and seen and known forever. And that came along and it liberated women and protected, there we go, David, and protected children. Paul would go on to write, the wife's body doesn't belong only to her, but also to her husband. And everyone was like, yes, right? And he was like, the husband's body doesn't belong only to him, but also to his wife. And everyone's like, that can't be right. What happened was that is that God came in and, and liberated women and men to both have a full and complex sexuality and agency. They were full actors and co-participants that actually, without both the the wife and the husband giving themselves fully, you don't image God. So sex is good for women and men because it makes women and men co-equal partners in giving and receiving delight. That also means that our bodies are beautiful. Your body is beautiful and deserves honor and celebration in its diversity, its diversity of its genderedness, its diversity of how it looks, what it feels like, the shape of it. We come to sex to be affirmed and known in that as women and men together co-equals. But sex is also good for women and men because it always has redemptive potential. There's always the potential within this view of sex to heal and to grow and for something new to come that didn't exist before. Um, I will tell you part of my story just so that you uh, just feel like I didn't come up here and talk to you about sex. Um, from an, like, invulnerable place, um, so, and I, and I am, am trusting you with some of my stories, so thank you for that. Uh, so I, when I was growing up, um, I was introduced to sexuality and sex and um, the sexualness of our bodies uh, with other children um, that, that was not welcome and um, I was introduced to porn as a young person, and when I had uh, sex for the first time, I was in eighth grade, and I was the last person I knew in my friend group to have sex and uh, to be involved sexually with someone. And from that point on, uh, oh, and, and, and that encounter and those encounters uh, were not welcomed by me, really. They were insisted on by uh, the girl I was with, Uh, And boys don't get to say, like boys are always supposed to want to. And so I, I, you know, I did. And um, but I I did, she was pretty insistent. And um, then going through middle school and high school, you know, um, I was involved with many people and uh, often I was the insistent one. and that happened before becoming a Christian in my early 20s, after um, being a Christian. And then I got married. And you know, so the thing is, I didn't grow up in this world, so I didn't necessarily think that getting married was going to solve, like, all my sexual-ish. And, um, and in, in that relationship, I've experienced um, profound healing and joy and also um, the profound ability to do harm. And to cause pain and to cause alienation, to say with my body things that aren't true about God, but also to be able to turn and to learn anew how to say things with my body and my soul that are true about God. Um and have been received with delight. You know, I'm just now learning in my all of my life how to allow someone that loves me to delight uh, in me and my body. So Sex can be a means of healing the sexual wounds that we all bring into it. So if we tell people that by merely waiting, everything is going to be okay, we're not telling the truth about both our brokenness and the process of healing. Um, We are free to use sex and to experience it without fear of destroying it. I knew a little girl that had a, had a, that loved bunnies. I also love bunny. I just saw that you were here, bunny, Um, but this is a different bunny, just so you know. This is like rabbits. And she had a bunny lamp and she loved her bunny lamp and it was on a bedside table, but it was so precious and the shade was so precious that she never took the plastic off and was encouraged to always keep the plastic on. And the plastic stayed on until it was sold at a yard sale when they moved out of their house. And much of what Christian culture and our, our society gives us is a view on sex that somehow, like, exists to maintain purity. The problem is that none of us are pure to begin with. And that purity is a myth. And um, it's not God's highest good for you and for your body. Jesus comes to give us a new life and a pure heart, but we all bring our pain and our ability to wreak havoc and destruction into sex. When we, when we start in sex with a spouse, then we begin to learn how to unlearn all that. Sex can provide the opportunity to grow and to change and to heal because you work at it together. It allows you to take the plastic off the lamp and actually experience it together because what we do together in our bodies and souls is we work against shame we work against the fear that we will be seen, exposed, and rejected. If Jesus rose from the dead, and he surely did, that means that your best days are never behind you, but the best is always to come. And that is true for your bodies and for sex. Even within your marriage, that means that we get to try again. And when we understand what sex is doing, that it actually has a capacity for healing, then it frees it from being our total identity. I don't have to be identified with my sexual desires as if they are the core of my identity. They're more powerful and beautiful than that. God gives us a self. Sex can never give you a self. The stuff you buy can never give you a self. The place you live can never give you a self. The people you know can never give you a self. Whatever you accomplish in the bedroom or in the boardroom can never give you an identity. Only God can give you an identity. And He gives you something that is more beautiful and powerful in this sex because we get to, to experience our desire without making our, letting our desire define us. And therefore, we're free to use it without fear of destroying our identity. Sex is a giving and receiving of delight and glory that powerfully shows one another in the world that God's love is generous and loyal. And God invites us into something better than pleasure and bigger than identity. He is very pleased. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, um, I, I open my mouth to speak um, and, and just ask, Lord, that you would just be kind to us that you begin to teach us, no matter where we are, who we are, that you intend beautiful things. Lord, help us to find our, our rest in you, to move forward with hope and freedom, knowing that you are pleased in your people and that you are very hungry to be near us. I pray, Lord Jesus, in your name.